good. Well, it is a pleasure to be here. Um, Pastor Brett, last week, or two weeks ago, I was out in the car um, getting ready to leave, and he came up and asked me to speak. And generally, when somebody asks you to speak, you think, well, I need a topic or I need a title. And when he did, I thought, well, dang, now i got to figure out a sermon title. Like, I can't just get up and speak. And it reminded me of this guy. So there was a guy that was called into ministry, and when he was, he... Um, he went into seminary after he graduated Christian college. And in seminary, one of his first classes that he had to take was public preaching, speaking, preparing sermons or whatever. And one of the first weeks he went into class, his professor looked at him and said, hey, you know, here's your first assignment for the class. He said, if you're going to be an effective preacher, you need to learn how to make up a really catchy, really kind of entertaining sermon title. And he said... Um, that's your assignment for the weekend. Come back Monday and be ready with your sermon title. And so the kid, when he walked out of the class, he was in his mid-20s, and he walked out and he said, the professor said, I could tell he kind of looked kind of puzzled. And the kid walked up to him and he said, I don't really fully understand what you mean by this. And the professor said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I've just always gotten up and preached and you know, kind of let the Holy Spirit lead me wherever I go. And he said, well, he said, think of it this way. He said, think of it that you're pastoring a church, and on Sunday, you're, you're going to preach a message, but out front, they're going to flash your sermon title on the marquee, and it needs to be so attracting and so grabbing that if a bus, imagine a bus full of people coming by, that a full bus just, it stops them in their tracks. Your title stops them in their tracks, and it causes them to want to get off the bus and all of them immediately just go inside and hear your sermon. He said the guy kind of went, okay, I can do that. And he said, well, he left and that weekend went by. And he came back in that Monday and said the, the professor looked at him and said, well, how'd it go? He said, well, I'm fine. He said, I, got, I did exactly what you wanted to say. Well, he was going to wait and let the class pass in their assignments that he had written down on paper, but he had to know what the kid had done. And he said, well, what was your sermon title? He said, well, you told me. Imagine a bus coming by and this title flashing on the marquee being so drawing and powerful that it would cause everybody to get off the bus and want to come in. He said, so the title of my sermon is, There's a Bomb on Your Bus. <laughs> so, sorry, I had to tell that story because I immediately thought, gosh, that's, that's perfect, but... Anyways, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I thought when I was getting up to speak, I said, you know, I told Jesse, my wife, I said, I can't just get up in front of a bunch of people. I said, nine out of ten of y'all have no clue who I am, don't know anything about me. So over the next couple minutes, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my testimony, a little bit of Jesse's testimony, and then we're going to go into a story. I'm going to try to tie that in a little bit into a story uh, that we've probably all heard if we've grown up in church. But real quickly, so I grew up in Pulaski County. I'm a Pulaski County native. I was born, raised there. Um, I am very, very blessed and thankful to have godly Christian parents that raised me in church from the time I was two weeks old. And, you know, we talk about that, we hear stories about that a lot, but I'm thankful that my parents raised me in a Pentecostal, a spirit-filled church um, because uh, we don't see that. We see a lot of kids raised in church that go by the wayside, but I'm thankful that Jesse and I both were raised in a Pentecostal, spirit-filled church, 
and that we were encouraged and had incredible children's pastors, had incredible youth pastors, encouraged us to go on mission trips. And I remember when I was 14, I went on my first mission trips. Um, we went to a Haitian community in one of the Bahama Island chains. And it was a real impoverished island in the center of it where these Haitian refugees had come. But the out exterior of the island was just gorgeous, million-dollar homes. And so for seven years, I did that, went there, um, Again, grew up in church my whole life, had a great support system. I have uh, two sets of grandparents that are both still living, and both of them are believers in the Lord. So that shows you right there, and I encourage you that, you know, raise your kids, raise your grandkids in church, and let it be a lineage, let it be a heritage that's passed along. Um, Jesse as well. Jesse had her, a lot of her family grew up in church. Um, it was one of them things, you didn't miss church on Wednesday night for nothing. You didn't miss church on Sunday morning or Sunday night, and you didn't do sports on either of those nights. And if you did, you told the coach you were going to be missing. So I grew up a little bit old school, but I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful because I can't tell you I would be standing here and be where I am today if it wasn't for that. So uh, when I was about 15 or 16, um, a guy that had passed youth pastored at Pulaski Church of God, which is where I grew up, he um, moved to the inner city of Atlanta, and for about five or six years, I started going to the inner city of Atlanta and working, doing missions trips down there. And so when I graduated high school, I'm going to be the first to tell you, when I was 17 years old, I remember a revival service happening, and the Lord called me into ministry, and I was scared to death. Um, I was sitting over on the drums playing at a revival service, and the Lord told me the whole service. He said, you need to get up and you need to tell this church that I've called you into ministry. And I didn't want to. I fought it. I, my voice shook when I finally got myself to do it. But that was at 17, graduated high school, didn't have a real clear plan for college. But I am thankful that I had youth pastors that poured into me and said, I don't care if you go to two-year, four-year, six-year, or whatever, but long as you are doing what God's called you to do is all that matters. And so I remembered hearing that and being nurtured in that, and so I remember going to New River and working go while I was going to New River Community College. And during that time, um, I met Jessie. She was going to a Bible college in Roanoke right off the Hollins exit, and it was a two-year non-dating program, so that was kind of difficult when you are attracted to somebody and they're in a non-dating program. So um, I, I respectfully disagreed with that, but I honored it. And so um, anyways, we went to, um, went to Atlanta in 2005 that summer to work in the inner city and volunteer. And I remember the Lord telling me, he said, Brad, you're about to graduate New River this spring, and... I want you to move down here. And immediately my flesh rose up and I said, Lord, I'm not doing that. I said, I, I don't, I have a two-year degree, probably can barely go out making $10, $11 an hour. I was like, I, I, I'll wait on this. I'll wait and see if it's truly the Lord and see if, you know, this is really what I'm supposed to do. And I'm here to tell you that for about eight months, I went through this season of just wrestling and struggling with the Lord and missing out on so many opportunities because I'd heard the voice of the Lord and heard the call of God, but I ran from it. I didn't do anything bad. I didn't go into sin. I didn't go into drugs, alcohol, or anything like that. But I ran and didn't want to do it. And I remember the Lord very clearly. He spoke to me. He said, this is your chance. He said, pick up the phone and call him and call the director and tell him you want to move to Atlanta. So I did it, and that summer, I remember, as soon as I hung that phone up, 
God immediately just started pulling people left and right in my life, people that would walk up to me in church or after church and just hand me a check for $1,000, hand me a $100 bill, hand me a $50 bill. I remember the first time somebody walked up and handed me a $100 bill. I thought, well, this might help me live for four days, but this ain't going to be a week's salary. And I thought, but this is good. And I remember the Lord clearly, the first bit of money I got, that $100 bill, God said, put it in the offering. And I was like, come on, God. I'm like, look, I, I can't do that. Like, I need to save this. You've called me to save this. The Lord said, no, put it in the offering. And I'll speed up a little bit. Jesse was going to school at Lee University down in Cleveland, Tennessee, in a Bible college down there. And we had started dating, sort of courting. And um, we knew that we were going to get married and be together and all that stuff. And we had, you know, I'd asked her to marry me. And we were planning a wedding and all this stuff. And I remember the week of October 22nd, 2005, I remember I was moving to Atlanta that weekend. And um, the pastor of the church at Pulaski at the time called me up front and he said, Brad, he said, you have been faithful throughout all these years. And he said, if you have not seen the reward, then you're going to see it now. And the Lord told me to do this for you. And he brought me down front, big sanctuary, a lot like this and set me in a chair. And he said, the congregation knows the fruit of your labor and knows what a steward you have been over the years. And I'm going to be honest with you, as a teenager, you don't really think about that. You don't get taught about stewardship too often as a teenager. And I remember my youth pastor just telling me, be a good steward of what God's given you. Be a good steward. Learn to respond respectfully instead of just reacting. Taught me these little nuggets of faith and truth. And I remember the pastor brought me down and he said, I'm going to put this sheet and I just want you to hold it out. And he said, we're going to bless you. Long story short, by the end of that evening, I had almost $7,000 holding it in my arm that the church over almost 21 years had faithfully saw me grow and develop and poured and nurtured into me. And that church supported me, and I moved to Atlanta that weekend. I may not, Leslie, I may not get to that. So um, if not, I will, hopefully, maybe next time I'll teach on it. But um, the weekend I moved to Atlanta, I remember that Friday, my mom, you know, she was a ball of mess. She had taken the day off of work. My dad couldn't, and he had come home, or my mom had come home, and I'd had my truck packed, and I headed down to Atlanta, and I remember for about a six-and-a-half-hour drive, I cried probably half of it. And I thought, Lord, I am a white man that grew up in the country that could live life here and be settled and be fine here. And you've called me to the worst neighborhood in the state of Georgia in the highest crime rate, highest homeless population, highest drug rate per capita in the state of Georgia, right downtown. You've called me to go live there. And I said, I reminded the Lord on the trip down. I said, God, in case you forgot, I'm white and 99.9% .9 of these people are black. And I'm telling you, not, not because I was racist. I had plenty of black friends growing up, had a lot of people that I loved that were good friends with me and all that stuff that were of a different race or different color, so that it wasn't an issue. But I just remember thinking, Lord, I don't see what you're seeing. And I don't understand. I, you know, you've kind of got this blinders on me, but I can't see past this. I can't see it. And I remember I go down, and that Friday evening, the pastor... Um, that was on site there, not the guy that had hired me, but one of the pastors, he said, hey, st now, let me back up a little bit. This warehouse 
had a eight, it was on eight acres of land, over 225,000 square feet, and it had 12-foot razor wire fence around it because it had to be protected. And I remember I go in, the pastor said, leave your stuff here, and I said, you know, is it going to be all right here? He goes, I don't know. He said, just leave it locked in this back room. And he tells me, he says, the plans that we had for you were to stay with a host family for a couple months have fallen through, so you're not going to be living there. And again, growing up on mission trips, I was, had a youth pastor that had really taught us and stretched us to kind of just go with the spirit, go with the flow, just, just go with it and see what God would do. Well, I was good until the pastor looked at me and said, for the weekend, we need to take you downtown. We're going to let you stay at one of our men's shelters that we support, and you're going to go downtown for a couple days and then come back here Monday, and you know, we'll, get you, we'll figure something out. He said, follow me. Well, I had been downtown Atlanta, but not by myself, so I drove and I start following him. Well, a 10-minute trip to where we were supposed to go took about 25 minutes. Little did I know, he was kind of playing a game with me. He, he pulls up to the Hilton Hotel downtown. He goes, will this do for the weekend? I said, yeah. I said, that'll be perfect. So he let me stay in the Hilton for the weekend. Um, that Saturday, Hurricane, if y'all remember, Hurricane Katrina had hit New Orleans and thousands upon thousands of people from New Orleans were migrating up to Atlanta, and there were distribution going out the doors left and right and all this stuff. Well, I go and I start serving, show up to work on Monday, and the director says, hey, um, for the next couple months, we're going to let you live with my wife and my five daughters, which we knew them and were incredible people and incredible time to live with them. And so I lived with them for a couple months while I will never forget in January, we were having dinner at their house, and he said, hey, come over to me. He said, come over, I want to talk to you for a minute. And he said, Brad, he said, there's an opportunity. And again, I'm 21 years old. He said, there's an opportunity for you to be um, the head over a men's home that we have lease on for about six months to eight months. He said, I need you to be the director of it. And he said, now these men, he said, they have crimes. He said, they're, they're rap sheets a mile long. He said, they've robbed, they've stabbed, they've used drugs, they've cheated on their wives, all that stuff. He said, but they're a part of our program, and we want you to be the director of them. And I kid you not, two seconds after he got that out of his mouth, it was like the Lord said, yes. And I was like, no, back that up. I was like, God, that wasn't, I'm like, that's not fair. But it was literally like the Lord took the words and vomited them out of my mouth, like, yes. And I was like, did I really just commit to doing this? And so the Lord just worked in an incredible way. And about two weeks later, I moved into that home, which was in an even worse neighborhood than the one before. And I'll never forget, I told the Lord, I played basketball with the pastor um, about three days a week and played in one of the neighborhoods down there um, at one of the community centers. And um, I remember when I pulled up to that home, they had a pit bull that was about 65 pounds in the backyard that every time I would mow the yard, he would, for about 10 minutes, he would latch onto the front wheel of the mower, and he hated it. And no joke, for 10 minutes, he'd hold on, and I'd mow and sweat like a dog. But I pulled up on that property, and I remember thinking, all right, this is going to be different. And uh, over the next week, six different men from the ages of mid-30s to upper 60s moved into that house. And I got to know those men and loved on those men and cared for those men and got to hear their stories and really see firsthand what people had been through. 
Because again, I'd grown up in small Pulaski, Virginia, and you know, knew that there was bad stuff going on, but I'd never really been exposed to that. And so for six months, I lived with them, and God just transformed my life. Uh, many of them, unfortunately, chose to go back into the lifestyle. A few of them were very successful and moved on in life. And after six months, the director came to me again. He goes, hey, he goes, the lease has run up on this house. He said, we knew it was going to be about six to eight months. He said, but I know you and Jesse are getting ready to get married here in about a year or so. He said, would you want to live in the warehouse? And I was like, again, one of them moments where it's like God vomited the word yes out of my mouth, and I was like, okay, God, like, you're teaching me here. Like, I don't understand. I don't see the big picture, but I know that you are with me. And God kept saying that over and over. He goes, Brad, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And I moved into that warehouse. Two weeks prior to that warehouse, there was a lady living there that she was moving out the day I moved in. She was the secretary. She was living there just during some transition. And the warehouse door had gotten broken down twice. Again, 12-foot razor wire gate around it. Don't know how, but people had broken in and had tore the door down, and she had called 911. And I remember, if the Spirit of the Lord has ever come upon me, I walked on that gate one, the evening I moved in. There was nobody there. I said, Lord... These nasty basketball tennis shoes are staying in the back of my truck, and I said, ain't nobody going to steal them. And I said, there will not be anybody breaking this facility from the time I live here till the time I move off the property. And God honored it. God honored it. And over those next year and a half, I lived there and got to know the people in the community, got to know the teenagers that were there. Had many teenagers calling me and Jesse saying, hey, can, will Brad come let me stay at the warehouse because my mom has got raped you know, last night and I was there when it happened. Or they're shooting in the neighborhood down here and one of the bullets just came through our window. And I remember having men and women, prostitutes, coming up going, can you just give me some food? And man, it broke down every bit of prejudice. And I heard somebody say this the other day, so don't get mad at me. But I heard a man say, every one of us, regardless who you are, have a little bit of racism in you. Every one of you have a little bit of prejudice in you. And we have to die to that daily. We have to die to it daily. I believe it. We ought to die to it daily. I believe there are sins in our lives that we've prayed and we've fasted and we've sought the Lord and sometimes those keep popping their heads back up and the Lord honestly with myself he reminds me he said remember what it says in Romans do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and he also said in Luke 9 23 if any man come after me he's got to take up his cross daily and so I lived there for about a year and a half and got to know the kids, became youth director. Um, as many of y'all know, Cody and Leslie and all you guys, you wear different roles when you work in ministry. So I was a youth pastor. Jesse and I were also worship leaders. I was also the facility cleaner, clean toilets and all this stuff. And at many times I became... Um, I became what was called the food kitchen prep guy. Basically, three days a week, one day we would take food out to 150 homeless people, and we would prepare it. And then there were times where during the week we would bring people in, and we would have them sit down to a hot meal, 150, 200 people in our facility. And we would just love on them. And, man, we brought companies and organizations in who would do um, HIV testing for them and do mental and health counseling. 
And for those three and a half, almost four years, I could tell you story after story of how God radically changed my life. I remember, I'll tell you one real quick, we went into one of the apartment complexes that literally is right in the heart of Atlanta. You can see the Georgia Dome, you can see the city of Atlanta, they've tore them down now. But we walked in, and I remember the youth pastor at the time, he said, hey, when we go in here, he said, the two girls that are in our kids program, they, uh, their grandma, they live with their grandma, and they live with their uncle as well. And I said, oh, okay. They said, but he said, here's the problem. He said, I kind of think their uncle's demon-possessed. And I went, kind of a problem? I think that's a big problem. And we kind of joked and laughed. I said, no, for real. I said, you know, let's go in. He goes, no, I'm not being funny. He goes, I think he's demon-possessed. I said, okay. So we walked in. And I remember standing at the door with my back to the door. I was the smart one that stood at the door. And he walked in, and he was sitting on the bed with the grandma. He was talking to um, the two girls that were in the kids' program, Molly and LaRonda. And I'll never forget, I look up, and I'm standing at one of those apartments where you walk into the living room or you walk up to a staircase. And I remember this skinny, um, skinny as a rail, ripped to shreds, African-American guy walks up the step or walks down the steps. And he comes down, and I could tell his eyes were glazed over. I don't know if he had been smoking dope or what, but he came down about halfway down the steps. And in this one monotone voice, he just started cursing, and it didn't make sense at all, and it wasn't loud. It was very soft. And I just remember standing there, and the Lord said, pray. Well, the whole time he had his hands behind his back, and he's starting to get closer, and he's starting to get closer, and he's coming down probably about five steps from me. And I just remember said, I said, in the name of Jesus, let this guy leave me, like, leave now. And I remember just saying that, just whispering it. And all of a sudden, he turned around, and when he walked back up the steps, he had a switchblade that long behind his hand that he was literally holding behind his hands, behind his back. And I just remember moments like that the Lord just used over the next three and a half years. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but... When we got um, to a point where Jesse and I got married, we lived in an apartment outside, about 30 minutes outside the city. Now, at the time, the first year I lived there, I made $6,000. That was my salary, made $6,000. And I could tell you again, time after time, how people would all of a sudden, when I needed money, send money. $1,000 check would come in. Somebody would just randomly call and go, hey, here's this, here's that. And the Lord was with me. And I, I'm going to keep saying that because I want to get to a point here in just a minute. But the first year of our marriage, we lived in an apartment that costed way more money than we had. For the first six months, Jessie did not have a job at the time because she had graduated, and it was just a tough time to find a job. The housing market in 2008 and 2009 had crashed, which many of you know about. And I remember um, Jessie just got a phone call from a friend, and she was like, hey, I'll come do some subcontract work at the corporate Y downtown. And within a matter of God just working and orchestrating some things that happened, over the next couple months, she went from working and stuffing envelopes just for the, you know, to help them out. And the Lord told her, said, I want you to do this for free. And I was sitting there going, okay, we kind of need money, but if you want to work for free, go ahead. Uh, and I learned at that point not to question God too much because I had seen what he was doing in our lives. And she began to work, and all of a sudden she got bumped up to $12 an hour, which her salary was double mine. And the Lord just began to work over the next couple years and bumped our salaries up and just took care of us. And I'm a firm believer that there is life and death in the power of the tongue. I'm a firm believer of it, that you better be careful what you say. 
Not that God is a God that will spite you and make you feel bad, but sometimes God hears you say something enough, he will allow it to happen to maybe stretch or grow you or maybe to take you to a place where you're cautious of your words and be careful what you say. And I had learned over a couple years, I had found myself meditating on the Lord and praying and saying some things. And God, God just birthed that scripture down in me because I could go back and tell you five or six instances where I had literally said to Jesse or had said driving by myself to work, man, I'd love to do this. And all of a sudden it happened. All of a sudden it happened. Jesse came to me one evening after about, we'd been married less than, less than a year, and she goes, you know what? She goes, I miss my family. She goes, you think we'd ever live in Charlotte one day? And I said, well, I don't know. It's, I, I know a little bit about the city, but I, I don't know. I'm, I mean, if that's where the Lord wants us to go. And Jesse, what was it? Probably less than a month and a half. All of a sudden, the director came to us. Nothing was wrong. He said, man, you've been faithful, but there's a position that's open that I'd love for you to go in Charlotte and work with a partner ministry. <clears throat> And so God worked that out. Long story short, in May, right the weekend after our anniversary, one-year anniversary, we moved up to Charlotte. And for two and a half years, we worked in West Charlotte, which, again, was another low-income neighborhood, right off of Billy Graham Parkway at a ministry over there. And we had a couple former NBA players that ran the ministry, and they were, uh, we had a sports program, we had an after-school mentoring program, and we had a church. It was three tiers, and so we worked in all three areas. And I'm going to be brief. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think anybody that, I'm not going to say anything that's not known information, but over the next two and a half years, it was one of those things that sometimes you go through seasons where God, and, and, and I'm gonna, let me just interject this. The day you become a believer is the day that God begins to work in seasons in your, in your life. You're living in a season in your life right now. It may be a really good season. It may be a not-so-good season. It may be a season where you're just not clear on what God's doing. But I truly believe God does work in seasons in our lives the moment that we accept him into our life. And um, for two and a half years, or three and a half years in Atlanta, God had just, we worked our tails off, but God had just birthed in us and shown us and grown us, or grown us, that ain't a word, is it? Grew us. I make up words when I speak sometimes, so pardon me. She always tells me, Brad, you made up a word when you were speaking, so I may make up a word and you go, huh. So you can, you have my, you have my permission to interject that in your vocabulary. Um, but God had grew us tremendously throughout three and a half years in Atlanta, and over the next two and a half years in Charlotte, God brought some of the most amazing people and some of the most amazing friendships and relationships but we learned the other side of the story, the not-so-good side of church. And we learned, I will say this and just make it very simple as possible, we have said to each other many times, Atlanta was how we want to do when we're in ministry one day, how we want to treat people, how we want to love people, how we want to do things and honor God. But if you've ever been in church long enough to know, you know that churches aren't perfect and people aren't perfect and we're not perfect. So for two and a half years, we had some incredible God moments. But those two and a half years, we look back on now and we go, if we're ever in leadership, we don't want to treat people that way. We don't want to do that, what was done to us. We don't want to have that happen that way. And so 
Um, we found ourselves in April of 2011, I believe it was, April 1st, 2011, we found ourselves unemployed and being let go by that ministry because of ulterior motives that, um, that were had. And so it was one of those moments where you sit back at 26 years old and you go, God, I know you're with me. But Leslie, you can put the first point up, the kind of topic of what I wanted to talk on for the next few minutes. But what do you do when it doesn't look like God is for you? What do you do when you know God is with you, but it doesn't look like God is for you? Because in that moment, I tried to hang on to that season after being let go, and me and Jesse, we cried, and we were angry and frustrated, and you know, just God just kept telling us, just know that I'm with you. Know that I'm with you. And we began to see God be with us, but there were times, I'm going to be honest with you, it didn't feel like God was for us. It didn't feel like it. And God began to show us, and honestly, we wanted to stay in Charlotte. We wanted to live there, and God told me very specifically, he said, Brad, you've applied for jobs. You've done what you should be doing of anybody that would get unemployed. You've looked for jobs, you've provided for your family, you've prayed, you've fasted, you've trusted but it's time to let go of this season. And I truly believe that sometimes if we're not careful, we will find ourselves stuck in a season that maybe God was wanting us to let go of. And it may be a season of relationships. It may be a season at your job. It may be a season as a young person. It may be a season where you're saying, I don't really want to live here. I don't want to be here. I don't want to work here. I don't like where God has me. But I remembered in that situation, God just kept saying, Brad, we're with, I'm with you. I'm with you. But I'm going to be doggone honest with you. It didn't feel like God was for us. And God reminded me of that this past week because the past two Sundays, Cody's brought the song up, The Blessing. And, and I remember sitting back playing the first Sunday and sitting back this past Sunday singing it. And I remember God reminded me of this. God reminded me, said, Brad, I was for you even when you didn't feel it and even when you didn't see it. And so what do you do when it doesn't look like God is for you? And so for a couple months, we lived and we, you know, we trusted the Lord and we cried and we fasted days without food because we wanted the Lord's will to be so strong. We didn't want to miss it. And the Lord brought us back here to Pulaski and we've been living back here. God's opened so many doors, but I'm going to be honest with you, when you were hurt, or when you're wounded, or you've been wounded by church, or you've been wounded by Christians, or you've just been wounded in life in general, the last thing you want to hear is, well, Brad, God's for you. Well, it doesn't feel like it. I'm sorry, I want to punch you in the face, but it don't feel like it. I'm just being honest. Yeah, I, I, you know, we're transparent here. I, I, I love it because I know that God was with me, but I didn't feel like he was for me. And it was so stressful, and we lived for three and a half years with my grandparents who were great people, but I don't suggest that. <laughs> I don't recommend that. And I didn't see God being for us during that time, even though God was with me, and I so many times wish I had wrote down over those three and a half years of being back here some of the things that God did for us. But I, I, with the time that we have right now, Leslie, I'm not going to go through all those scriptures, but I am going to get you to pull up Genesis 50:20. And I want you to look at this. So many of you understand and have heard the story of Joseph, heard the story of Jacob and Joseph's brothers, and how God used that story. 
And I want to go back to the end of the story before I go through a little bit of the first part of the story and remind you that God looked at Joseph and said, you intended harm for me. But God intended, or he looked at his brothers and said, you intended harm for me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And if you're watching that online, that applies to you as well. I believe that God is saying to some of you what the world, what your circumstances, what maybe your family, uh, maybe an ex-husband, a wife, a season of life that you're in, what may be inflicted, being afflicted upon you right now, you may not understand. But I'm here to tell you, as Joseph realized at the end of this story, what the world and what that situation you're going through intended for harm, God's using it for good. But in order for us to see that, we have to put on what I've always heard a pastor friend of mine say, you need to put on your spiritual blinders, your horse blinders, where you are simply looking at God and you're focused on him and you are trying to see daily what God is doing. And I'm going to tell you this, for about the past year and a half, I, I have went through seasons, Jesse and I have went through seasons of our lives. We've got two incredible boys right now, and I'm here to tell you, there's been many days where I've sang gloom, despair, and agony on me. She did it. Why didn't my kid go, whoa? I was waiting for it, Caden. I was waiting for it. But there's been many days where I have felt like that, and I didn't see what God was doing, but often God reminded me, Brad, I'm with you, even if you don't see me being for you. Even if you're in your flesh and you can't see it, I'm with you. And one of the prayers about a year and a half ago, God just threw in my heart as a prayer that I've heard a million times. He said, I want you to pray this. Every morning when you get up on your ride to work, he said, I want you to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, and say it with me, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what you're doing with that and what I'm doing with that is we're declaring that God's purpose and plan for your life is going to come down daily. And the reason why I had to pray that, and maybe you're here or maybe you're watching online and you're having to say, well, I need to start praying that, is because you don't see what next week holds. You don't see why what's happening. You don't see or understand the situation you're going through. You may not see what you're dealing with. You may not understand it. But I truly feel like during this time, the Lord looked at me and said, that's all I want you to pray. That's all I want you to pray. I want you to pray that each and every day, and I'll take care of the rest. That's all you prayed, Brad? Yeah, that's all I pray. And I pray it every morning. I pray it every morning because I truly believe that that prayer sums up so much things that we need daily. It's how Jesus said, here, here's how I want to teach you how to pray. And so, what you intended to harm, God intended for good. Now, I'll briefly go through the story of Jacob, as many of you know this story. So, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the descendants that God had put, told Jacob, he said, out of this you will have 12 sons that will represent the 12 tribes. One of those sons was named Jacob, he was, he was no, Joshua, excuse me. One of those sons was named Joshua, who was Jacob's favorite. And Joshua was known for interpreting dreams. Am I saying it right? Joseph, golly, cut the camera. No, I'm just kidding. Joseph, I'm getting all these J's mixed up. Joseph was well at interpreting dreams, but his brothers were jealous of him. 
they threw him in a pit, we're going to kill him, and instead of killing him, one of the brothers stepped up and had a little bit of mercy and said, no, we're not going to do that, we're going to sell him. Now, in that time in the Bible, if you grew up free and you grew up rich, then your life was rich and blessed. But if you grew up free and you were sold into slavery, your life might as well have ended there. It really would. It, it might as well, jo Joseph's life might as well have ended there. But God, what was meant for evil, God had for good. And I wanted to go through every one of these scriptures, but I'm on, for time's sake, I'm going to speed up a little bit. But over the next almost 20 years, God took Joseph through what many of us read, and we don't really capture it, but I'm just going to tell you and, and phrase it the best way I know how. It was 20 years of hell. 20 years of absolute hell. Thrown in a prison. Was framed for rape because he didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife. And during this time, let me back up a little bit, before he was thrown into jail, he gained favor with Potiphar. Problem is, everything he touched prospered, but guess what? Potiphar and Pharaoh got the blessing for it. When you read it, if you go home and read it, Joseph didn't get the blessing. Everything he touched was blessed, but Potiphar and Pharaoh got the blessing. And so it didn't really look like God was for him. But promise me, if you read this story when you go home, it said, and many times, I think it says about four or five times during this passage, but God was with Joseph. But God was with Joseph. And he had a baker and a butler, and he interpreted dreams for both of them. And he asked one of them, ain't this typical? He asked one of them, he said, hey, I don't like being in prison. Go tell Pharaoh what the dream is being interpreted, and when you do, remember me. And guess what? Being a jerk of a friend, he didn't remember him. So he spent a lot more time in prison. Spent a lot of time in agony in this cell. And for 20 years, I don't know your story. If any of you have been locked up for 20 years, it, it, I can't imagine. But for 20 years, it was just miserable. And at the end of this 20-year period, Pharaoh had a dream. And he said, Baker and the butler, one was dead, one was still living. And uh, I... I believe it was the baker went to Pharaoh and said, I know a guy years ago that interpreted a dream. And he said, well, go see if he's still living. And he went down and found out he was still living. Joseph came up and the Pharaoh told him what the dream was. And Joseph starts to interpret it. And when he tells him, he says, hey, by the way, Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of more harvest than you can imagine. But after that seven years, you're going to have the worst famine that this country and this land has ever seen. Before that, Pharaoh says, hey, can you interpret this dream for him? And Joseph says, I cannot. Well, all of a sudden, the baker, I can imagine the baker sitting there going, you idiot. You interpreted dreams for him. What do you mean you can't do it? You're about to get both of us kicked back in jail. But God, with God, even if he didn't see that he was for him, God was with him. And God allowed him to interpret this dream. And so Pharaoh, again summarizing it, Pharaoh looked and said, Who is like this man that his God can tell him 
Who is like this man that this God can tell him these visions and dreams? And again, Pharaoh didn't mind if you believed in multiple gods, but he did not want you to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the baker's sitting over there going, um, you've done screwed up again because you told him you believe and you hear from the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he interpreted the dream, and Pharaoh put him in charge of all of it. And at the end of these 14 years, Jacob's about 40 years old. And the famine had spread so far, even outside the realms and outside the barriers of Egypt, it was spreading into the entire world. And just north of Egypt were 11 brothers and a dad who was old in age. And we see in the story what happens is those brothers come to the land and say, we are desperate, we are hungry, the famine has reached us and we need help. And they didn't recognize Joseph, didn't have a clue who he was. And Joseph toyed with them a little bit, had them do some things, but Joseph, in that moment, many of you and myself included, probably would have taken the opportunity to go, well, let me tell you how my life has been, how my life has been. Let me tell you what I think you should do because the past 20 years I've lived in hell. And he didn't. He didn't. Why? And if you want to write something down, write this down. He responded with character instead of reacting with emotion. And some of the greatest moments in your life and in my life and some of the greatest opportunities in the future that are going to come your way, you're going to be challenged to react with emotion and risk 50-50 making a really bad reaction and possibly blowing something God's got for you. Or you can respond with character as Joseph did. And he looked at him and said, is my father still well? And they said, yes, he's still living. And when they realized who it was, they could not do nothing but fall at his feet and they fell down and they said, Joseph, we, you know, we bow before you. Please help us. And Leslie, go to chapter 46, and I'm going to read through it real quick. So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. So the Lord at that time is talking to Jacob and he's saying, Jacob, your son and your sons have found food. They've, they've reconciled their relationship and I have done this and I want you to go to Egypt and stand before your son and even stand before Pharaoh. And he says, I am the God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. So what felt like in the beginning of this story, the 12 brothers that represented the tribes, what felt like to Jacob that his vision from Abraham and Isaac that had been passed down had just totally been wasted. He had thought, my, my 12 sons, one's been killed, and the other 11 are living like crazy guys. They're not doing nothing that I wanted for them. They're not inheriting what my forefathers had told me. But then it comes around full circle. It says, I am the God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. 
goes on and says, I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives into the cart that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Cana. And Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and his grandsons and his daughters and granddaughters and all his offspring. These are the names of the sons, and I'm not going to go through all that. But what you are seeing here is when you sometimes don't feel like God is for you, I want you to never forget that God's with you. But 20 years later, we're seeing that God was for him, even when he couldn't see it. Right here, you're seeing that God was for Jacob. God was for Joseph, even when they didn't see it. It's coming around full circle. And you know what? You may be here. And you may say, you know what, I've got this situation nobody knows about. I'm in this season, and nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody understands how I'm feeling. And you may say, I've heard pastor, and I've heard people say to me, you know, God is for you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And sometimes we need to be reminded that even when it doesn't feel like God is for us, he's still with us. If you have forgotten, maybe you're watching online, if you have forgotten that God is for you because your circumstances are so tough or so difficult and you can't see past tomorrow remember God is with you and what's even greater is God will restore your wasted years amen God will restore your wasted years God is not a God that stands back and go you know what you screwed that up really bad for about 30 years of your life I don't want to have nothing to do with that I'm gonna cut it off I don't want it talked about I don't want it remembered or nothing but God will, even though he forgave you of your sins, God will restore unto you what you feel like was wasted. Because God does not hang your sins over your head. As a matter of fact, he loves, he loves restoring what you have messed up. Because he loves showing you that you're God, or that he is God and that you are not. And I'll close with this. I heard somebody say one time, God will never give you more than anything. God will never put on you more than anything you can bear. And I've disagreed with that. God will put more on you than you can bear because he wants to be the one that shows everybody he's bearing it for you, if you'll let him. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here, God. Thank you for meeting us here, God. And when we leave here, you don't stay here. You go with us. And Lord, I am so thankful, God, that you restore what I have messed up and you have restored and are restoring what people here and maybe watching online have messed up. And Lord, I am thankful for the story of Joseph that I can be reminded today and that everybody sitting here can be reminded today that even when it doesn't feel like you're for us, God, you reminded Joseph so many times that in the pit and in the struggle and in the despair that you were with him. And I am so thankful you never leave us nor forsake us. I pray over these people. I pray everybody watching. I pray that this Sunday your spirit will fill this room in such a powerful way. And I pray against the darkness. I pray against the enemy that is trying to come against us. Our communities, our neighborhoods, Lord, we bind it in the name of Jesus because we believe that your spirit and your power is going before us. We believe that in these last days that you are going to see Legacy Church and you're going to see churches around this community that are spirit-filled churches. You're going to see 
people in this community laying hands on the sick and laying hands on the broken and the hurting and seeing blind eyes open and seeing hearts and souls delivered from addiction and bondage. We declare that, we decree that, and we ask in Jesus' name that it will be done on earth as it already has been done in heaven. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.